Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock, episode number 63 for Saturday, October 31st, Halloween. And I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. (laughs) And I am Captain Sabri Hellmaston. Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, I should have done that. I can be like, how about instead of Ken Gagney, I'd be like, Frank Ken Stein Gagney? (laughs) It's Steen. Frankenstein. Sorry, that's right. I always forget where I am. I don't know where I am until I hear my name pronounced. So, are you dressed up for this audio podcast, Sabriel? Are you wearing your fancy Halloween costumes so that all our listeners can't see it? Um, we'll say yes. We'll say yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's I'm very elaborate. My- I wish I could describe it in detail, but we would be here way too long. I know, right? I mean, I went, of course, as my favorite Star Trek character. So you can just imagine what that is going to Oh, look man. Like. Yeah, that looks great. You look Thanks. really well. Uh, Thank you. You are most suited to uh, that character of yours that you like. I know. You, you know, I like. Well, sometimes I'm not even in costume. People are like, "Oh my gosh, you look just like that person from Star Trek." And I was like, <laughs> "I know, right?" It's uncanny. So, <laughs> you know, there was one time. I think I was a senior in high school, and I was working at Blockbuster Video, which, by the way, I'm currently living a half a mile from the world's last Blockbuster Video. <laughs> but I dressed up as a Klingon. I had to be in the uniform for Blockbuster, so I didn't have all the clothes, but I had the makeup, the wig, the forehead ridges, and my boss let me stay that way for the rest of my shift. It was great. <laughs> oh, I lost you. Are you there? Can you I am. Me? Are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, yes. No, I can. Great. Well, super part of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, fortunately, Zencaster caught it. Good. Okay, good. I'm sorry right. that uh, I talked over you. No worries. Well, you know what? Even though we're talking about aliens, this week's episode of Star Trek Discovery, Season 3, Episode 3, is called The People of Earth. And I was blown away by that concept. At no point in the first two episodes of this season did I even stop to think, what about Earth? And this is such a great idea. We so rarely go back to Earth and Star Trek. And this week we did. Yeah, uh, Star Trek does its best to, for the longest time anyway, it did its best to avoid going back to Earth. Now, Enterprise and Deep Space Nine changed that a bit, and the whole premise of Voyager was getting home, but we still didn't see Earth until the last second. Oh, but no. uh, yeah, no, now Star I Trek's been, you especially TNG right era, I think Roddenberry specifically wanted to avoid going to Earth as much as he could. You know what? I, I hope Zencaster caught that because you dropped out for a moment there. Oh, weird. But... You know what? Sometimes, even though I can't see the waveform, it looks blank where you were supposedly talking. When I download your recording, it's there because it records locally. Awesome. So we'll just assume that it went fine. Um, Okay. But yeah, I feel like the only times we really got to see Earth in modern day were a few episodes of Enterprise, but more specifically in Deep Space Nine. Like Voyager, of course, didn't get there until the last episode. Spoiler. Uh, Star Trek, the original series, went there a few times, but usually it wasn't there time period there was time travel involved like uh city on the edge of forever or that episode with uh, the agent from another alien race that stops the missile from launching or whatever you know the one uh-huh or the uh going back in time uh with the jet oh what was that 
Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, like tomorrow's visitor tomorrow's or something. Yesterday or something. Yeah. Tomorrow's yesterday. That's it. And next generation, of course, Picard went back to his ancestral home in France, but we really didn't get to see like Starfleet Academy or the United Federation of Planets headquarters. And that is something that I thought, wow, that's going to be really cool. It kind of reminded me of the John Scalzi novel, Old Man's War, because there is this entire you know, galactic federation that exists, and they purposely have cut Earth out, even though it was Earthlings who founded it. So a slight oh, really? spoiler there. Yeah. So <laughs> so people leave Earth to join the Federation, but then they aren't allowed to go back. And so Earth knows that like people leave Earth and they go somewhere and do mm-hmm. something, but it's completely one-way communication. <laughs> and that's kind of like what is going on with this episode. Earth, after the burn, is completely cut off from everyone and everything, just like so many other people are. And let's go back and find out what it looks like 900 years later. Yeah, it was a question I really hadn't thought about either. I mean, because Star Trek is just so much about everywhere else. And I thought it was, I found it neat to go back. Uh, wow, we found Earth is very isolationist now. Um, yeah, uh, no, I mean, they're very isolationist. I found that uh, interesting to see. And they're very like, whatever, the Federation, whatever, we don't care. I appreciate that they were isolationist, but not xenophobic. Like when the Discovery showed up, they were no more or less suspicious of Saru than they were anybody else on the bridge. They built that galactic barrier to keep out aliens. It's not like they said to Michael, you can come down, your captain has to stay here. Yeah, I think I even saw some um, other aliens in the, um, what was it, what did they call it? Investigar- the investigation force or the the group of oh, people, the people who, beamed, who on. beamed up oh i didn't yeah. notice that i thought they, they all looked human to me i could have sworn oh what was the what's the alien oh, i'm drawing a complete blank on names today uh the race that talks in insults that were one of the founding members oh yeah the one that wesley crusher was talking to when he was applying for surfleet academy uh, yeah, yeah yeah i know i know which one you mean but the, the only way you can tell them apart is though is that they have webbed fingers is that? Oh no, oh, no, not the Benzites. Te- oh, oh, you're talking oh, about Tellarites. Yeah, yeah Tellarites. There we go. Not, but not the Benzites. Tellarites. No, 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 no. Benzites are the ones with the little vaporizer in front of their mouth with the blue oh. skin. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did you know that Earth Defense Force EDF is also a video game? I did not know that. Yeah, it's a Japanese series of third-person shooter video games. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, it's come out for everything from PS2 to Vita to Switch. First game came out in 2003. Last game came out in 2019. Now, granted, it's, you know, it's a pretty generic name. What else are you going to call a force that defends Earth? But the <laughs> Earth Defense Force. But when I heard that, I was like, gee, you know, couldn't they have maybe tried to come up with something different? Like the Earth Protective Force or like well, see, the Earth Guardians? I thought this was a callback to the original name for Earth Space Agency before Starfleet or Federation, uh, like the United Earth. Um, it was like UESPA or something like that. Was that in Star Trek Enterprise or That was else? in Star Trek period, like the original series even. Oh, oh. So like, bef- like maybe in like the uh, canceled pilot where they didn't really have all the names down yet? 
Oh, something like that. Yeah. Or they might have even referred to it during the original series because there was a lot of fast and loose terminology <laughs> uh, for a while. I know. Like, what? how many warp speeds? They're going like warp speed 12? Yeah, exactly. Honestly. But uh, we went back to Earth. We uh, the very important. I know it's kind of jumping to the end of the episode, but we saw no Boothby. Yeah. You know, when... <laughs> When Picard went back to see Wesley Crusher, oh, that is an episode where we got to see Starfleet Academy. He got to talk to Boothby, and then I think he was referenced in some other episodes. And oh, yeah, 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 that was, was it. Major. When uh, uh, the the well, the last mission that Picard and Crusher went on, he said, "When you go to Starfleet Academy, there's an old man there. I want you to look up. His name is Boothby." And Will Wheaton says, "Like, what does he teach?" And that's the first mention we get of Boothy. He says, no, he's a groundskeeper. And you're right. He was on Voyager. Alas, the actor, Ray Walston, died 19, actually almost 20 years ago, January 1st of 2001 at age 86. Uh, in my mind, yeah. even though he's Boothby, I also know him from the old TV show Picket Fences. I guess it's old now. My parents yes. used to watch that. So. Yeah, the, you can't recast him. I, he, and 900 years later, it would be nice like if maybe they went up to that tree and his initials were carved in it <laughs> forever. Well, we used Earth as... I'm sorry, my internet is fussy tonight. Um, we used Earth as a more of fill-in the gaps what happened in the last X hundred years. You mean how the captain of their police force told us a lot of stuff that happened? Yeah, I mean, they mentioned they filled in the burn. What happened here? Which was like what, a lot of this episode was still filling more in here. Like they're still figuring out, like mm, whatever in here. And they mentioned a few times, like they don't, they weren't sure if it's was an attack or if it was some natural phenomenon. And everything to me sounds like something here is. Um, there was more to this the burn than we. I don't think it was natural. I agree. I don't. I'm surprised that in the 150 or so years since the burn happened, that nobody has figured out what caused it. And yet what they might need to figure out what caused it is a warp capable starship that can go around and explore all these clues and follow up to see what happened. So the very thing that caused the burn crippled people from deciphering it and discovering what actually happened. Yeah. So it's like they can't use, they lost the tech to be able to research it because like, all you can get is the viewpoint from Earth. Really. <laughs> it's true. Although I'm, there are a couple of things I'm trying to figure out. Like, If warp-capable ships are so few and far in between nowadays, why does Earth need a defense force? Because it must be very hard for people from outside Earth's solar system to reach Earth nowadays. Was it? Did they build that entire force and space shield just protect themselves from the people from Titan that were attacking them? Yeah, that seems like a bit much. And I guess the implication is there that there's, because she mentioned raiders, so I guess it was implied, but not specific, that there are others who attack. Or, you know, they're very scared. <laughs> um, but, you know, you're right. You're right. It doesn't make sense. Why would they go to all that trouble um, if it's just Titan <laughs> is the problem. Uh, uh, right. I'm also curious... There clearly is still dilithium in the galaxy. People trade on it. They know what it is. So was it just the dilithium that was being used in starships the day of the burn that exploded and all the inert dilithium that had not yet been mined was fine? That seems to be my interpretation. Oh, well, even then they said dilithium supplies dried up and then came the burn. And I mentioned... Mm. all. Uh, 
Yeah, and so it sounds like something caused something out there. Even I don't know, like even I, like, I kept thinking. I don't think he would do this, but even Q, uh, like something that. How could you do this on such a scale? Even um, wow, Stamets. Uh, names are tough today. Stamets sent like that doesn't make any sense. That it all went at once. Right. It reminds me of this amazing comic book series that has occasionally been debated about should it be a TV series, a movie? Why the last man? Oh yeah. I, yeah. Oh, have you read it? Only the first issue or two. I know the first one, maybe two. Yeah. I, I read it as it was coming out like 10, 20 years ago. The first issue opens with everything on earth that has a Y chromosome dying, like instantaneously, simultaneously with the exception of the main character, whose name is Yorick and his pet monkey. And so the rest of the book, the the run, has a couple of different goals. Like first, he sets out to find his girlfriend and let her know that he's alive. But also, how could everything on Earth die simultaneously? Like if it was a viral agent, you would think it would propagate and have different moments where it would activate. But yeah. this was simultaneously. And that's the only other time I've seen something like that where so many things that have one element in common yet are separated by time and space would all ex- have the same experience. Uh, yeah, it doesn't make any sense unless it was some kind of unnatural event. Although it is interesting that here comes discovery and they have some dilithium, but do they have enough? Oh yeah. That was something like I was thinking like uh, the beginning of the episode, we show the huge dilithium room, a room that we've never seen before. Uh, when it's all plum full, like, oh, they're going to use this showing either it's getting more depleted over the season or by the end of the season, it's going to be a nearly empty room. And they're going to be some tension moment like we don't have much left. We have to do something. But if we do this, it's going to be too risky and we'll lose it all. Uh, it's going to be this huge deal. Why would they build this set otherwise? Yeah, I'm wondering if it is going to be used to power their ship or if they're going to continue to trade it as a currency Either way, this resource is very limited and it's going to be depleted. Yeah. Um, and, yet, and yet, Star Trek Voyager, when they started that series, they were like, how many f- torpedoes do we have? And they were like, we have 24 <laughs> torpedoes. I'm like, okay, we got to make it last seven seasons. <laughs> and hum, you know, if you count how many torpedoes they use, they use a lot more. Now, clearly, they found some resources to manufacture more. But the idea that they're going to stick to this finite resource being finite mm, we'll see maybe because it's only going to be like a season-long story i'm sure then they'll maybe stick to it more but if it was like the entire focus of seven years you know right. normal Star Trek length, then they'll be like eh, a little hand wavy <laughs> although that brings up a good point which is the episode flashes back a little bit and we see how michael spent the past year as she's doing a uh, her, one of her logs, her journal entries. And she says that this basically is not the future that they fought for to save. Now, granted, there's life, which would not have happened had Control gained the sphere data. But this is clearly not as optimistic a future as she hoped for anyway. And she said that she was not going to let it stand. And that can mean a couple of things. It can mean that she is going to fight to bring back the Federation, everything it stood for. Or it can mean going back in time and putting right what once went wrong. I think they're going to drop the time travel aspect, at least until the end of the season. And who knows what next season will be about. 
I my my thought when she said that, like, while I did consider that what you just brought up the time travel, I think it's going to be just try to rebuild the Federation, or at least start it off. And I mean, that's, that's the big thing, right there. Yeah, just she's going to try to rebuild the Federation, like everything that they stood for for hundreds of years, even well beyond their lifetimes um, or natural lifetimes. Uh, no, they're going to bring it back. Like it's too too important to her and the whole ideals to just disappear within a hundred years. And we saw some of that effort to bring back the Federation in this very episode with how they handled the encounter with Wen, who, by the way, I thought that was an unusual name. This is basically like one of the first villains they've encountered as a result of time travel, and his name is Wen. But I checked the subtitles. It's spelled W-E-N. And so maybe... Yeah, I found that after my notes, too. (laughs) Regardless of the spelling, it seems an unfortunate choice. I honestly did not expect them to attempt a peaceful resolution to that encounter because there were a lot of armed ships facing off against each other and somehow they still brought it home without any fatalities. I thought that, that I, mean, I, I saw this coming to like, no, they're going to make a talk because they're, they're really pushing this season of we're going to rebuild the Federation. And even if that means we're starting with Earth, uh, here we go. Uh... I saw that outcome coming. I had no idea that when with that ridiculous mask uh, was human. <laughs> you know, I, I think I saw some people saying like he's an, a poorly disguised human. And I was like, really? Because it's 930 years in the future or so. Anything is possible. I would totally believe mm-hmm. that this is an alien. And so yeah. I loved it. Like when George, you kicked him to bring him to his knees. I thought she was just pissed off and was sh- trying to put him in his place but no she was physically lowering him to her height so she could reach the mask and take it off i was like you you are so smart she is so smart i like her i don't like her but i like her (laughs) something tells me that in universe they all knew he was no because they all said you're human like no one scanned him even the transporter whatever 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 right i mean well for our sake not the show's sake (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe the Earth Defense Force didn't have that kind of scanner or whatever ship Book is using to hide all the dilithium from scans. I'm, it seems reasonable that similar technology could be applied to biological life signs and that they too are screened because awesome. yeah. when wanted Earth to believe he was an alien. Awesome. You know, that's why he was wearing the mask. True. So. Or they just didn't look at the scanner when they beamed him over. Like. <laughs> By the way, you picked up on the fact that the actor who played Wen, Christopher Heyerdahl, used to be on Stargate Atlantis. That's what I found online because I have never seen Stargate Atlantis. Uh, a bunch of people were talking about him. Like, oh my God, that's him. I'm like, oh. I have never seen it either. He played Todd the Wraith, which just based on that name makes me want to go watch Stargate Atlantis. I know, right? <laughs> were you a fan of any of the Stargate multiverse TV shows? Uh, I didn't. The only one I've seen was the pilot for the SG one uh, about a month or two ago, and that's all um, I've seen so far. Because Robert Picardo also had a regular part on oh, really? one of the Stargate series. I believe he was on Atlantis. Oh, I do make one correction. Um, Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson were in an episode of one of the Stargates. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, I've seen the clip. And on YouTube, so I guess I have seen more Stargate Atlantis, but about only those few more minutes. And I think Nicole DeBoer, who was um, 
Ezra Dax, Ezra went Dax. on to that show after Star Trek. Huh. I've only ever seen but. the original movie. And so I have seen none of the TV shows. It seems like kind of like Star Trek. It seems like a lot to get into. There are just so many episodes and so many right. series. Where do you start? Right. But anyway, I like that scene where they're reestablishing the Federation. They even stuck in a few notes of the original series theme oh, I missed uh, it. as they're talking. Uh-huh. They're very good about that with the uh, musical cues, especially in Picard, for example. We heard a lot of Next Generation in that show. Yes, and a little bit of Voyager when Seven was on and all that. But So That's I like right. the musical cues. I like it. Yay. They're very subtle. I mean, they're obvious when you see them, but they can be subtle if you're not paying attention. Which is nice because you don't want to hammer your audience over the head with, this is a musical number you should recognize. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There are other characters we want to talk about, but I want to briefly go back to the fact that they did go to Earth. And I'm disappointed. I really thought that next week's episode would be entirely them on Earth. Instead, all we got to yeah, see was some of the minor characters was going to hug a tree and then beaming away. Because Tilly was like, what if there is nobody there after 900 people that I recognize, nobody that I know anymore? And I think these people from Earth or who have relatives from Earth would want to spend some time going into the genealogical records and finding out what happened to their families. Like, did they get up, have breakfast, and go to work? Did they have kids, grandkids? And that is stuff I would want to know. That would be a higher priority for me than a tree. I would like to know that too. And I suspect if... That is a possibility, but either off camera or for future scenes since they were just got here. So I don't know if that's the most interesting television and it would be for me. I mean, but they've done that before in Star Trek with like TNG uh, when they found the people in the ice capsules. Um, right. The, the episode where the Romulans came back. Yeah. They, they, they've kind of done that already in the past. So, but I mean, well, I still think it would be interesting, but yeah. Yeah, one difference is that in that episode of Next Generation, it was characters who only appeared in that episode who had traveled into the future, not characters we knew well and had an emotional investment in. Right. I think seeing how Tilly responds to finding out what happened to her family would be much more meaningful to us as viewers. I agree. And there's still space for that. I don't know if there was just time in this episode or if it would have made sense yet. Because they're, they're processing so, and they're going through this disaster. So let me ask you this. If you were flung 900 years into the future, Uh uh, how would you feel about the fact that everybody you loved had died? Uh, Besides the, the, uh, I almost swore, Uh, (laughs) wibbly wobbly timey-wimey of it. Uh, You know, that's a hard one to say because... uh, I mean, granted, it is highly hypothetical. Right, I know. Um... Uh, no, it would be sad. But, you know, if you can go forward, maybe you can go backwards too eventually. <laughs> I know that's kind of out of the question for these folks, but no, I mean, ultimately it would be a bummer because you missed out on so much in those experiences, you know? Like you missed out well, on that's, so much. I, of I, think you're, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there, which is it, it, it's sad for the people who went to the future because they missed out on so much. I would be sad for that as well. I wouldn't be sad for the people I had lost per se, because it's not like they suffered an untimely demise. They still had long lives. It was just that I wasn't there for it. Right. You know, the only thing I might really feel sad about other than my own loss is in this case, 
Discovery was wiped from the history book, so nobody knows what happened to it. So if Tilly has family back home, they don't know what happened to her. And Mm -hmm. that living the rest of your life not knowing is hard. Right. Like if I had the opportunity to go to my family and say, hey, I love you all very much, but you're going to have to learn to live without me because I'm going 900 (laughs) years into the future. That would be a lot different from, oh my gosh, I got to go right now. I don't have time to say goodbye. Right, right, right. (laughs) Anyway, you know, there was some other playing creatively with time in this episode because Discovery just arrived in the future. Michael had been there for a year and we got to see how that interaction played out. Yeah, she, uh, oh, Giorgio really hammered this in. She kept doing it, but they kept showing it in other ways too that Michael's after a year gone and kind of letting the fact that she, or, you know, letting Discovery go, realizing she may never see it again. Um, she, you know, she let them go, but then all of a sudden here they are. So she was not used to being in a command structure anymore. Not as Giorgio put it, not following her own rules anymore. And I, I like, I like that they're exploring that. And I don't know if they're going to go any deeper into that, but I'm glad they mentioned it. Yeah. There are so many times when characters, in an episode of Star Trek, have an experience or live a longer life and then have to come back to reality, like with Picard and the inner light or with O'Brien on Deep Space Nine when he was in prison for 20 years. We don't often get to see the long-term repercussions of that, but here it's kind of the same end result. Michael had a year that everybody else did not. Now, unlike Picard and O'Brien, it was a real year with real consequences, but regardless, we're getting to see the results. And that's something I really appreciate. They just rarely address it because those shows are so bottled. Uh, it's played out over a season. So I'm glad they're exploring it. Even if they don't go any deeper than this, I hope they do. But they even kind of nodded to it, which I appreciate. When she was going through her journal at the beginning and she basically gets interrupted by her communicator going off, I immediately started getting emotional because I knew what was happening. And when she beams aboard the Discovery... And she starts crying. I started crying. Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't know how much of that was just me empathizing with the character and how much of it was. I have been traveling for more than a year now. And the pandemic has prevented me from occasionally going back to where I started and seeing all my old friends and family. So there are people who I used to see every week who I now have not seen in a year and may not see for another year because of the way the pandemic is going. And I, I'm hoping that <laughs> they're as happy to see me a year from now <laughs> as Discovery was to see Michael. Right, right. Oh, we just hmm. didn't know. We just didn't know. Yeah. And um, somehow Tilly picks up on the fact that Michael let them go. Yeah. Oh, that moment. That was tender and hard, with fun as well. And, you know, I was watching that scene when I watched this episode a second time. Michael barely said a single word that whole scene other than cake is eternal. Um, <laughs> uh, she just nodded, smiled, or she gave that, you're right, look. Uh, I think she did really well acting that scene, and it's not saying a single word. I hadn't thought of that. When I watched the episode, I didn't realize that it was more of a, a monologue on Tilly's behalf, but you're right. Do you think when... Well, first of all, how do you think Tilly so quickly picked up on the fact that Michael had resigned herself to not seeing Discovery again? Uh, well, besides that, Tilly is very bright. Um, you know, she was probably just, she, her mind works in so many different ways at once. She was thinking all these outcomes out and she's like, 
And then you see how Michael is reacting. You can pick up on these cues and like, oh, you let us go. It, and she even said, like, I know you. Like, I don't know you, but I know you. Like, she knows. She knows Michael and how she works. Yeah. Somewhat anyway. And, do you, and when Tilly said, you let us go, do you think that was a statement or an accusation? A statement. I don't think she was doing anything accusatory. What do you think? Because I, I th- knowing Tilly as a character, I think you're right. But I can also see how you might get mad at somebody for losing hope. And I don't know if, I don't think that's what Tilly was going for, but somebody who doesn't know Tilly that well might interpret her as saying, how could you do that to us, Michael? How could you lose faith that we were coming for you? We'll never let you go, Michael. Maybe Tilly just knew time travel because they never knew when they were going to appear. Gave gave Michael the benefit of the doubt. Uh, But I can see that. No, that definitely some people wouldn't have that reaction. I don't know if anyone on this crew would, though. They are lucky that, I commented last week, it's been only a year since Michael arrived. Given what we now know from the end of her first episode about long-range sensors and communications, it's fortunate that Discovery popped back up somewhere that Michael picked up on it. Right? Right? Uh, I guess they I guess they assumed it was going to be in that region, because that's where the wormhole came out. But uh... Even though neither of them landed on Terralysium. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that they reunited. <laughs> We're still on the Michael boat here. Um, George, oh, I mean, she had a lot of scenes, but didn't have much with Michael directly. Usually it was talking about Michael in other ways, especially with like book. She beams book over and she starts giving him the nth degree on his relationship status with Michael. <laughs> yeah, we, we did see... Georgiou and Michael walking down the corridor. This is Admiral Giorgio because mm-hmm. she's in her outfit at that point. And she, I think she did hit the nail on the head given Michael's response. Where, you know, Michael went right from growing up on Vulcan to going into the Starfleet. Or no, she got rejected from the Vulcan Science Academy. And so she went right into Starfleet. So she's never really been on her own. It's kind of like my friends who got married right out of college. I'm like, how do you do that? Right, right. <laughs> And I'm like, so yeah, but that's what Michael did. And then for a year, she was just like, hey, let's be a courier. Let's do whatever the heck I want. And we see, that's what you were talking about earlier, Brie, about us seeing the impacts of that year. She's now not bristling under by being under somebody's authority for the first time in over a year, but she is having to acclimate to it. And she wants to. She says that very clearly to Saru, but it's going to be a challenge to get back to where she was. And that's one of the reasons why she was so caught off guard when somebody said, welcome back, Commander. She hasn't heard that name, that title, in over a year. And that's no longer how she thinks of herself. And she needs to get back into that mindset. I really like that little tiny scene. It was so short and so subtle. I mean, not subtle, but Mm -hmm. just so short and so quick. Yeah. It really catches her off guard because she's just coming out of a turbo lift, just chatting. And then she's like, oh, I had that happen to me once. I was at a social event where you know i think of myself as ken and i'm chatting with somebody and all of a sudden uh she makes a comment that makes me realize she's one of my students parents i was a high school teacher and her son was in my class and just from her comment it suddenly you know jarred me from being ken to being mr gagne which is a different (laughs) identity that i keep 
And so I did not expect that. And so I, if somebody called Michael commander out of the blue, I can see how she would be suddenly be like, Oh, that's somebody else. I also am. And I forgot about that in this context. <laughs> but it's fascinating though. I, it's an interesting tale there. Yeah. <laughs> no, just like having that different identities and who talks to you a certain way. I and mean, many of us have experienced that with talking with high school friends or talking with college friends, or talking with one group of people, one group of friends, one way, another group, another friends, another way. Um, but have that whole like disconnect, like, oh, right, you know that personality. Uh- <laughs> right. And even if at some point in our lives we change our names or change our nicknames, and somebody suddenly calls us by the wrong one, we'll be like, mm, okay, I understand you knew me way back when, but that's not who I am anymore. <laughs> so we talked, we, we break. The scene with Jarjo questioning Book, it wasn't, I don't think that was very deep. She was just kind of trying to get the feelers out. But then Michael's talking to, or yeah, Michael's talking to Saru about Book. And this is early on in the episode. And they're like, he's not from Earth. And he has a name, Cleveland Booker. And, <laughs> right. and they're like, what? Yeah, they're like, what is up with that? And Michael said, I haven't, not, I've not been able to get it out of him. He's not been able to get his story out of him in a year. And then, uh, which I find fascinating. So what's going on there? But also when Michael gets Booker to put on the Starfleet spacesuit, he's in the changing room, staring off into the middle distance and said, what is this? Whatever. And Michael just gives him this weird look, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I'm not sure if he's talking to himself or I'm sure he's talking to himself, but it almost sounds like he's, I, I wasn't sure. Something was just very off about the scene to me. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. My reading was just that he has never seen a Star Trek or Starfleet uniform. He's never envisioned himself in one and he doesn't want to join Starfleet. So he's just like, what is this? What is is this situation you have gotten me into? I'm here as a courier and now you have me masquerading around as a Starfleet officer who hasn't been around in this uniform in 900 years. I think he was just incredulous that he let himself be talked into it. Okay, that does make sense because he also adds that he can never say no to Michael, or he's he, <laughs> he 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 just not allowed to say no to Michael, basically. But he can say I I, even though he's not a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> I got a kick out of that too, especially since he then momentarily later said I, and so he, oh, he did learn that lesson quickly. <laughs> I did get a kick I, out of him trying to get drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Sithahal, what the? I was trying to enter a state of existential dread. No, you can do that without alcohol, believe me. 2020 has taught us that. <laughs> but I was trying to figure out their relationship, just like George U was. And he, Book said, she's not my girlfriend. And I believe him. I believe that in the past year, there hasn't been any sexual tension. They didn't do it. But now in this episode, when like she's helping him with the uniform and when they're saying goodbye, yeah, somebody who has been your pretty much only friend in the past year, that is somebody you would have a hard time saying goodbye to. But I felt like there was something more there, and that frustrated me because not every relationship between a man and a woman has to be sexual. But there's clearly something going on here. You're right. Um, I still think they're going to get together. But like, they clearly have had a ton of adventures because they keep saying things like, hey, remember when we did that thing on, on Optimus Prime Island, just making up things, and, you know, the Ryan Maneuver, <laughs> this, this, that. Like, they clearly have a lot of adventures in this last year. And, uh, but the way they act, the way they look at each other, there's something there. 
Yeah. And the, I, I don't know what it is. I, and I hope it isn't romantic, but if it isn't, I don't know what else it could be because I don't feel like this was two long friends just looking at each other. Oh no, it's going to be something. Cause Michael, she helps him zip up his uniform very intimately puts on that badge. Even when he comes onto the bridge, the women on the bridge are looking at him and they, they point out to Oshawega and Detmer and they both make the, hmm, <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, he, <laughs> he is handsome and he is snappily dressed. Maybe they're just not used to seeing people out of uniform. Uh, maybe. They're like a person who's not in uniform. <laughs> but you're right. Even though he has decided to make a new name for himself in the Alpha Quadrant, in the Earth Solar System, maybe, I would agree with you. We have not seen the last of him. Oh, not in the least. Not in the least. We still have to see why and more information on Grudge. We still have to see more Grudge and why she's the queen. <laughs> Although we apparently have seen the last of the communications officer we saw at the end of episode one. Um, Remember, they go to that derelict star base and he says, can you help me put up this flag? And Oh, yeah, I'm sure he's going to come back. I don't know. He's on the clear other side of the galaxy now. Oh, they've got the spore drive. Not that, you know. <laughs> Um, I was they, they can go they want now. But I think they're going to be pretty intent on figuring out where this Admiral Senna Tall is, who we find out is a trill that has been implanted into the human character Adira, who we find in this episode. Yeah, um, this is their breadcrumb to come to Earth in the first place, is to get a message from Earth saying the Federation is... Or like basically, uh, I want to see you. I'm from the Federation, you know, all that jazz. And that was their breadcrumb for this episode. And they get here, like, and they find out from the uh, Earth people, like, oh, he's been dead for two years. Yeah, and his message alone was 12 years old. Uh, but then, and you know, this is kind of like, I yeah. like how you describe this as breadcrumbs. I hadn't thought of that. But it reminds me of the red flares from last episode, last season, where they just go wherever this latest clue sends them. And now they know that Adira, who was part of the Earth Defense Force, is a human character carrying a Trill symbiont. And I forgot that Trills were largely not known their dual nature until the TNG slash DS9 era and discoveries from pre-TOS, which is why they had never heard of these symbionts before. But that explains why Saru had to explain to her yeah, trills weren't known. It was like discovered in TNG. Like the trills had never revealed it before. And so, yeah, they made it fit here. Uh, I mean, we've known that trills have been clearly part of Federation for a while because, um, or at least work with them because um, Jed Zia made comment that Dr. McCoy had hands of a surgeon. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but even at that point, McCoy would not have known he was talking to a hundreds year old humanoid. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, but yeah, we get to see um, Adira reveals that they have this symbiont, or you know, they are also Senatal. Uh, yeah, so I can't wait I'm to see what that brings. I'm surprised that the Earth Defense Force didn't offer any additional details about Senatal. Like, all we know is that they died two years ago, but they could have said, oh, they were a Trill Admiral who died two years ago. I just. I, I would hope Discovery would say, well, can we at least have Senatal's record so we know who this person was who sent this mission or this message? And granted, that would not have told them Trills are dual characters with symbionts in them. But right. 
Uh, actually, now that I think of that, I guess it didn't matter. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, eventually it didn't matter, we turned out, but it sounds like they were intentionally left that vague from her so they could have the reveal in the next scene. I did like Adira. I, li- I like the um, I like Adira's concept. Oh, we got, a, we got a trailer and a human. That's cool. Or at least human mostly. Uh, well, not, that's my version of it. Uh, <laughs> Daniel's, when he was on, he was from this near this time era too. And so when he went at the Enterprise, it's like, I'm human mostly. Mostly. <laughs> but um, I think that's an interesting storyline, but I also love the introduction for this character and their interactions with uh, Tilly and Stamets. What specifically did you like about that? I just want to entertain you. Like when, Stam- when they start figuring out like what's going on here, Stamets and Tilly, and then they think, okay, we've got a super genius kid on here who uh, sabotaged their own crew uh, so they could stay here on the ship. Uh, what's going on here? And then he go, and then Stamets goes up to Adira and's like, "I know what you did." And the music's all happy and playful. <laughs> and yeah, I, I don't know. I just like that and the, the interaction with talking to the kid. I just thought that was, I thought it was really well done, um, and entertaining, but also like getting them on their side. Like, how do we, and then, like, how do we talk to a tween, uh, <laughs> a tween nightmare or something like that? Um, yeah, I do feel like I Stamets like is mellowed. I feel like if this interaction had happened two years ago, he would have been furious at Adira, but instead he was just like, he he laid all his cards on the table. That was a mushroom drive. I am the interface and there's nobody like me. And also we're from 900 years ago. He, I I appreciate his transparency. Tilly and Stamets were all angry at Adira um, for a bit. And then they were joking, like, how do we, how do we get a tween to talk? Until he's like, give them some of your your crazy mushrooms. Um, but they they cued on the the exact thing they needed to show that you are also different. And I think that, right. that was the, I didn't I didn't think it was like right there in front of my face, but I didn't really think about it until just now as we were talking. Like, yeah, he's like, I'm different too. See, um, and so I like that a lot. Yeah, and that could mean a couple of different things for Adira being different. It could mean that they are a young genius, just like Wesley Crusher was. They could mean that they are. A trill symbiont, it could mean a couple of different things. We, we don't know yet. Um, but I am curious to see if they're going to explain how a trill can be in a human. Because the last time we saw that, the trill completely overrode the host's personality. <laughs> and this episode, what we see is the human personality is dominant to the point of having trouble accessing the trill memories. It's just the opposite of what we saw with Riker. And now there are a lot of things that can happen in 900 years. I believe that this is possible, this discrepancy, but I would like more information about it. Yeah, I can't wait to find out. I can't wait to find out. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Do we have anything else to say about Adira or uh, Stamets? Uh, I mean, Adira, the whole having this character on here is worth a mention, I think. Um, Yeah, what about... Uh, uh, this is played by someone who is non-binary and supposed to be a non-binary character. It's the first time it's happened in Star Trek. Um, we've had plenty of non-binary characters, um, but this first time, like, hey, we were trying to do this the right way kind of thing. I think that's great. However, I mean, we, we weren't sure to mention this, but they did use some pronouns. And I'm wondering if that's going to, I can't wait to see if, I'm interested in seeing if they're going to dig into that. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, you know, as soon as Adira showed up in engineering, 
I don't know how or why, but I just looked at Adira and said, this character is sticking around. Before they ever said a word, it was just something about their presence. Or maybe it was something I had read and forgotten about, about a new character this season. But Mm -hmm. I just figured the amount of interaction that this character is having is not something you would see in a guest character. Not just the amount, but the kind. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, I think, yeah. yeah. I I think partly it was the age. Like there was an older person from Earth Defense Force who was also in engineering. And if they had gone over into the spore drive and said, what's this interface? I don't think I would have thought much about it except that, oh no, the gig is up. But the fact that they had such a young person, a 16 year old doing it, I was like, that's unusual. And I think there's more story there than we're going to see in this one episode. Before we got the reveal that they're a super genius, I started figuring, I was starting to think like maybe this character um, like studied old spaceships and they were a big fan because they mentioned the museum and all that. And huh. I was like, oh, maybe they're just like, you know, like this, this geek who loves old stuff. And, and it sounds like it's partially right, but not quite. Uh, we found out the actual puzzle pieces soon after, but um yeah, there was something about this character, you're absolutely right, that stood out way different uh, about all the people in engineering. I do hope, though, that they, I mean, we understand now why they're so smart, because they have like a thousand years of history behind them. But I hope they're not played as a child genius, because I, I, I don't dislike children, but we had Wesley Crusher, we had Naomi Wildman, we had young Jake and Nog. And to be clear, I loved Jake and Nog. Uh But uh I just feel like we don't need to have a young genius on every Star Trek. Right. Yeah. It's not like this is a niche we need to fill. (laughs) Right. And granted, Enterprise didn't have one. And I guess you could argue neither did Picard. But anyway, Uh, let's see. We also should acknowledge the fact, speaking about diversity, now we have, for one of the first times ever, a starring non-human captain. Yes. <laughs> Are you surprised by this? Not surprised in the least, but I think it's great. Um, finally, we get that. I mean, it's been a uh, non-human captain who is the main character. Um, That's why I say starring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I missed that word. Um, uh, I think it's great. I love that scene where Michael's like, um, Saru was all ready to have the talk, have the discussion, and Michael's like, no, it's you, Saru. We all know it. Uh, and the crew is like, yep, nodding, yep. I noticed they did not focus on Giorgio, but uh, <laughs> when everyone else was nodding, but uh, yeah, everyone knew it. <laughs> I thought it was funny that in that scene, Saru is still wearing his parka from the ice planet. <laughs> yeah, because it was just a few minutes ago. Right. Uh, no, it makes times like these these bump up right next to each other. I, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. Continuity wise, it made perfect sense. It was just funny. He'd be like, if I was him, I I would ask, could, could I go change before we have this conversation, please? I just got in. I'd like to take my shoes off. If it was like next generation, they totally would have. Picard would have, you know, had the redress because they never they they wanted to show the crew in non uh, uniform as little as possible for whatever reason. Unless they were like on a on a pleasure planet. Hey, kind of, this is a slight tangent, but it reminds me of Galaxy Quest when Tim Allen is on that planet fighting the rock <laughs> monster, and of course his shirt comes off, and they beam him back up to the ship. And what's the first thing they do? 
is they hand him a new shirt. Yep. <laughs> and and I watched the documentary about the making of the movie, and they realized that they'd basically written themselves into a corner where they had to get his shirt off, but then how do they get the shirt back on? They can't just have him leave one scene without a shirt and come back in wearing a shirt. So You're- they just had somebody hand him a shirt. He's like, thanks, <laughs> puts it on. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. No explanation for why the shirt was there, but at least we now know where it came from. <laughs> uh, you know, I we have debated in previous episodes of this podcast, going back to the end of season one, when Captain Lorca was no longer captain of the Discovery, who the next captain was going to be. Because at one point they were headed to Vulcan to pick up somebody. And then when Pike left, we were like, now who's going to be the captain? And in previous seasons, I would have vehemently argued against Saru because he was such a scaredy cat and so suspicious. But ever since his evolution last season, he has really come into the role. And I think he is going to be, if he isn't already, a great captain. Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, I agree. Um, now, like, I mean, I could see it on the wall because the first season he's even researching computer. Tell me about great captains uh, and all the <laughs> qualities. And like here they're they're telegraphing they want to put him in charge eventually. Um, but no, nowadays nowadays here like after all they've gone through, I'm I'm so happy he's got that role. Yeah, I love the way he dressed down to Michael, and he was not, I would say, angry with her because he still trusts her and offers her the first officer position. But he nonetheless was like, look, if you're going to be in this role, if you're going to be on the ship, these are the rules you need to follow. And you clearly have not done that now. And you need to let me know if you're up to it. And that is not a conversation that a scaredy cat would have, whether or not he's angry. Right. And maybe the whole, uh, you know, that he had to have to go through that growth from his home planet and losing his, um, oh, what do they call them? The, uh, Fear ganglia? Yeah, the ganglia. Um, he had to lose that first. So he, uh, and, you know, they helped him get through there. You know, I just, the Saru character, I think he's one of my favorite characters now, just talking about this, just getting excited, thinking about the character. Uh, not even yeah. anything specific. I just really love this character. Doug Jones said in a recent interview on StarTrek.com, he also acknowledged that he has not fact-checked this and neither have I. But he said that he thinks he is the oldest actor to have been cast as a Star Trek regular. Really? Like maybe somebody else was cast younger, but was on the show for so long that they were ultimately older than Doug was. So he's Uh talking uh about from the moment that they were cast, he thinks he is the oldest person to come into Star Trek at that age. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how old is Doug Jones? I'm now Googling. Uh, I think he, <laughs> at least in his 50s. So right now, as I'm saying this, he is 60 years old. And so really? he was 57 when he was cast on Discovery. Wow. <laughs> 60. Now, granted, you know, for some of us who are, you know, you know, we're, I'm not as old now as I was when I started watching Star Trek, of course. But 57 doesn't seem that old anymore. <laughs> it doesn't. I think it's not more. No, my reaction is more like, wow, he looks really young. Oh, yeah. Well, it depends on when, like, the context in which you're seeing him. The, his Wikipedia photos from five years ago, and he has a full head of hair, 
when he's bald, like he was in the interview I saw, it makes him look older, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. Did you ever see him in The Shape of Water? No, it's a movie I keep wanting to see, and I just have not done it yet. I saw that and Pan's Labyrinth, which I think are the only things I have seen him do. And uh, he's he's quite good and quite terrifying at times, if he needs to be. <laughs> anyway, what else in this episode, if anything, came up that we want to talk about? Very minor. Oh, we saw Detmer. Oh, oh yeah, that's exactly what I almost forgot. Go ahead. Um, there's a scene where you know before they have the Federation talk and all that jazz where the Earth is going to fire on the um, Raiders and Enterprise, or Enterprise Discovery gets in the way. They really, Detmer was like, we can't take this. We can't take this. They're going to basically demolish us. We can't do this. And Sabrina was a couple of times, and even Oshuega was like, we can do this. We got this. And even Saru had to like, do it now. Detmer. And like, and it was very short and they didn't touch it on again. They didn't look at her face much. She looked happy when she was on Earth, but that little scene there, like there's something going on with her and she is hurting so bad. I wonder, I mean, she is one of the few survivors of the Vulcan Hello. She lost the Shenzhou and now she's been in some pretty traumatic experiences on the Discovery. I wonder if she's just had her fill. Maybe, maybe. It's, yeah, it's possible. Uh, or she's reg- yeah. hmm. You know what? I think by the end of this season, she will be alive, but not on the Discovery anymore. All right. I can't wait to see if that happens. I think I can see that plausible. Uh, if, 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 that's, if, that's the, if that is what's going on with her, I can see that as plausible. You know, just like how Neelix loved Voyager, but found something else that he loved that was worth leaving the ship for. Mm-hmm. I think Detmer is going to say, I want a quiet life now and you are all about to go off on this adventure or you're about to go back in time. And I'm just going to stay here. Yeah. I mean, here she's like wanting to do something like you're putting the ship in danger and she didn't want to do it. Um, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. But we're going to need a lot more character development before something like that is plausible. I hope they do it better than they did with Arium, where we didn't really know who or why she was until the episode she died. Exactly. And I don't think they're going to do that to Detmer here. Um, I wish they would give us a bit more, but I think they're going to explore this over the season. Yeah. Well, those are my highlights for this episode. Anything else? That's what I got. We got Michael having trouble with discovery. We got more filling in and how it happened. We got Michael and Book's relationship. We have Detmer. Uh, we had the rebuilding of the Federation or starting in it. I think that's all I got. Yeah, overall, I would say this was a pretty good episode, and it was directed by Jonathan Frakes. Yes, uh, everyone everyone loves him when he directs, and he does really good episodes. Or he does a really good job at directing episodes. Yes, and of course, making guest appearances on Picard and Lower Decks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can't get enough of this. Can't, cannot get enough of this guy. So. I did get a kick out of the title of this episode, like, People of Earth. <laughs> we come in peace. <laughs> Reminds me of the DS9 episode of Little Green Men. Yes. Yes. One of, one of the best episodes of Star Trek ever, by the way. I love that one. Oh. Um, but yeah, no, that's all I have for this episode. It sounds like you Yeah. Too. 
Yeah, I think that's it for me. We're now about a third of the way through the season. We have the old gang back together, and I'm ready to go on an adventure with them. Until next time. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Yeah, what is Saru going to say? Um, hmm. Let's go, Ensign. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Let's go, Ensign. Let's go. Yeah.